So uh, just to begin, if, if you don't mind introducing yourself, um, I'm most familiar with, with your two main books, uh, Conflicting Missions and Visions of Freedom, but if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit more, uh, we can begin with that. Uh, well, there isn't that much to say. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and uh, I was born in Italy, and uh, I worked on Cuba and the United States in Africa doing research between uh, 1994, basically until 2013, 2014. Excellent, thank you so much. And, and I've listened to uh, your interview, I would recommend just in the beginning, uh, the one you did with uh, the Radio Warnerd, um, the beginning was a great uh, section about the more of your biography and the archival work you did in Cuba. But I would like to maybe leave that uh, for that that episode, um, and instead focus on on the question of Angola um, and and some of your writings. So, in particular, what what I'm interested, what uh, what I study uh, coming from a South African perspective is the relationship of the apartheid regime and the United States uh, with the CIA and their relationship to Jonas Savimbi, uh, as well as on the other side, of course, Cuba. Yugoslavia, um, Soviet Union to an extent, uh, supporting the MPLA. So that, that's where I'd like to begin. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit familiar, of course, with the relationship of apartheid South Africa with Savimbi and, and the United States. But what I think people who study this subject a little bit may not know as much about is why South Africa um, and the United States and the CIA became so heavily involved in Angola. So maybe that's where we can begin. Some people okay. listening may not be familiar with the situation. So why did it matter so much for the United well, States and South Africa? From the perspective of South Africa, it made a lot of sense because uh, the MPLA, and in particular Agostino Neto, had said very clearly from early on that for them the struggle would not end in Rwanda, but would end in Cape Town with the collapse of apartheid. And that's why in 1975, at the time of the Angolan Civil War, South Africa decided to intervene. Uh, the goal was very clear, to destroy this movement that was pledged to help to the liberation of Southern Africa. And uh, Savimbi uh, courted the South Africans using his Portuguese contacts already in late 1974, and essentially offered this friendship to South Africa. And he proved it from the beginning, because already in 1975, during the Angolan Civil War, he told the South Africans the ubication of the camps of Swapo, the Namibian guerrilla movement in Southern Angola and Southeastern Angola, which was very important for the South Africans. So when the war ends with uh, <clears throat> the Cuban-Angolan victory in 1976, and Savimbi continues fighting his guerrilla war. And the MPLA, let me focus on the MPLA here. Agostino Neto kept his promise. When uh, he won the war, he offered Angola to the guerrilla movements, liberation movements of Southern Africa. And there was a tripartite uh, cooperation. The Angolans offered the land, the Soviets the weapons, and Cuba the military instructors. And they were operating from Angola. 
uh, in the memoirs of General Haldenais, who was the commander of the South African occupation troops in Namibia in the mid 1970s, and eventually became the commander of the South African armed forces, he writes that uh, the, the Cuban victory in Angola had a dramatic impact on SWAPO because it gave SWAPO what is an indispensable precondition for any successful guerrilla movement, a rear guard from which to operate. And so the position of the South Africans was essentially to help Savimbi to make life as difficult as possible to the Angolan government, and ideally to overthrow with the, using Savimbi and incursion in Angola, to overthrow the Angolan government. And already under the Carter administration, it became clear that the US government was not going to oppose in any serious way South African incursions, large-scale incursions within Angola. The one concern of the Carter administration was to force the Cubans out of Angola, regardless of the threat that South Africa represented. And so, and the Carter administration started giving secret assistance to Savimbi, even though it was against US law because of a law passed by Congress in late 1975. And so the South Africans became increasingly bold and the South African incursions in Southern Angola became more and more large scale. Ah, 77, 78, 79, and their help to Savimbi increased. So this is the motivation of South Africa, essentially. And at, at the same time, I'm curious to what extent uh, in the reasoning of Cuba uh, and in Fidel Castro and choosing to intervene uh, in Angola uh, during the South African invasion in 1975, how much was he thinking about apartheid in his mind? Uh, I know that he has some statements where he says we will not allow uh, apartheid to make itself uh, comfortable in Angola, but did he foresee that the Cuban intervention would play a huge role in, in as you're saying, allowing this space to be available for, for well, the MK, for SWAPO? Yeah. Because of the South African invasion, the South African invasion began in October 1975. And the Cuban response, sending troops, began in early November, November 7. And Fidel Castro was very clear. If he did not intervene, South Africa, the evil uh, alliance, Washington and South Africa, would impose in Rwanda a government, which would be the counterpart of, the, I think, of the government of Zaire, of Mobutu. Uh, willing to work with apartheid, apartheid, the apartheid regime and making life as difficult as possible to swap or the guerrilla movement, etc. And I think it's essentially Fidel Castro. And I think this is what triggered the decision to intervene. Fidel Castro understood uh, a, a victory of the FNLA Unita in 1975 would not just be a defeat of the MPLA, but would be a victory for apartheid throughout Southern Africa. 
And I think for Fidel Castro, the struggle against apartheid, he called it la, la causa mas bonita de la humanidad, the most beautiful cause of mankind, uh, was really a decisive element. Cuba did not intervene just or mainly to help the MPLA to win. It intervened to defend against apartheid. And you can see this, by the way, you are South African, uh, you told me. You can see it if you look at the South African press. If you look at the world, which was the major uh, black newspaper of South Africa in 1975. I started reading the world in January 75 to get a sense of the newspaper. And it was very meek, very servile to the lords of apartheid. And in late 1975, it starts raising its head and it becomes increasingly independent until you have that editorial in February 1976, at the moment in which the South African troops are still in Angola, but they are withdrawing, uh, where you have an editorial that says, I paraphrase now, uh, Black Africa is riding the crest of a wave generated by the Cuban victory in Angola. And Black Africa is tasting the Haiti wine of total liberation. Is the important psychological impact of the Cuban victory, not only in, in terms of Angola, but in terms of Southern Africa. A victory of the axis of evil, Washington, Pretoria, would have tightened the grip of apartheid over Southern Africa. So the scope, the goals went be beyond just Angola and the survival of the MPLA. And South African military, military intelligence understood it immediately. Uh, in the South African archives, I found an interesting uh, assessment by military intelligence in the spring of 76, saying that uh, the guerrilla movement in Southern Africa were emboldened by the Cuban victory in Angola. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've, I've read some accounts that say, of course, that Cuba helped show the myth of the white Superman uh, yeah. of South Africa. And I, I'm also interested in, you know, to what extent South Africans were playing a role in the battle. So in the Battle of Quetzalcoatl as well, you have Nkonso Wesezwe, uh, guerrillas playing a role, uh, although somewhat limited because they're not quite a powerful force. But what impression do you get of, of how much of a role South African guerrillas are playing? Of course, they have the uh, MK camps oh, there in Angola. The yes. Uh, I don't think they played any role in the Battle of Kilikonavala. Mm -hmm. I don't think they played any role in the Cuban offensive in southwestern Angola. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the Cuban documents, South African documents, the African National Congress, in terms of MK, the military wing, are not present in 1980. Right. Right. So it was much more of a, a propaganda victory in that respect, as with a lot of the guerrilla well, warfare. Uh, I'm not an expert on South Africa, but essentially there are two things there. One, you have reams of South African documents and US documents who say exactly, well, let's do in three steps. First of all, the psychological impact 
both on the white and black population of South Africa, of the South African army being chased out of Angola in 1988. Two, not only that, uh, you have the Cuban Air Force that starts flying over the sky of Northern Namibia. One thing that impressed me is reading statements by the South African Administrator General in Namibia, Pinar, I think was his family name, talking about Cuban planes flying over the skies of uh, Namibia, uh, which is an, a confession of impotence on the part of the South Africans. This is, and by the way, while the NC was not present, SWAPO was very much present. SWAPO troops participated in the Cuban advance in the Southwest. That's the first element. The second element is that uh, from the mid 1970s, you have reams of documents, South African documents and American documents stressing that if SWAPO were to win in Namibia, if there were supervised elections, internationally supervised elections in Namibia, the, the blow, psychological blow to South Africa would be very heavy. Psychological blow for the whites and encouraging the blacks. Uh, Namibia in, by 1988, was no longer so much important in economic terms, was extremely important according to what the South Africans and the Americans wrote in their documents for psychological terms, in terms of the impact that the loss of Namibia would have on the people of South Africa. Uh, and then you have uh, the statement of Nelson Mandela that uh, the Cuban victory in Southern Africa had a very positive impact on the struggle of the South African people against apartheid. Apartheid was a colonial system and in a colonial situation, the psychological element is very important. And the Cubans defeated the South African army. And uh, this point was already made in an article in mid-February 1976 by a South African military analyst writing, I think, in, in Cape Times, in, in the, in one of, in the Randall email, writing in the Randall email, and saying that the problem is that they've won, they're winning, and they are not white troops. This is in 1976 and this is in 1988. And so Cuba forced South Africa to hold uh, internationally supervised elections in Namibia. And at the same time, so, you know, the psychological impact is very clear on the apartheid regime. Yeah. And how is it affecting the Americans? You know, do you see this increased panic that apartheid is under attack? Uh, what is their perception of the situation? Uh, and, and how much are they thinking about apartheid as well and trying to defend it? By 1988, uh, they were not trying to defend apartheid. In 1988, they were confronted with a situation in which the Cubans had gained the upper hand 
in Angolans, in southern Angola, and in which the Cubans appeared stronger than the South African defense force. It is true that South Africa could have sent more soldiers from South Africa itself. The South African army was busy in the townships, etc., etc. But the Cuban Air Force in Angola was stronger than the Air Force of South Africa. And no one said it more clearly than General Harden Ives. He wrote in a memo in the summer of 1988 for the South African Defense Council that we have to be clear, if we have to engage in major operations against the Cubans, we have to understand that our Air Force will be destroyed within a few days. Now, for the United States in 1988, look, there were so many important things happening with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was beginning to crumble this and that, that there was no sense of panic about South Africa, no sense of panic about Southern Africa or anything. Uh, there was a development that the Americans did not want, the Cubans' military power, had a fear that the Cubans might enter Namibia. But still, I don't have any feeling that there was a sense of panic in Washington. And so at the same time, I think uh, something that, that intrigues me from that is the extent to which the Soviets by, of course, 1988, 1989 are not really caring about Angola. They have other things to worry about. But even before that, how much of the intervention in Angola is really a, a Cuban operation rather than this, as Washington is trying to portray it, a, a communist-backed uh, Soviet control? If you look at 1975, you have the memoirs of Kissinger, the, the third volume of his memoirs, where he does self-criticism and he says, I had believed that this was a, a Soviet-inspired operation. Now, with all the evidence, I realized that it was a Cuban decision. And then he asks the question, why did Cuba do it? And he concludes that Fidel Castro was the most genuine revolutionary leader then in power. And the CIA, for instance, a report of the CIA of 1981 that says that the Cuban operation was in 75, was a decision made in Havana and basically at the last moment, the Soviets were confronted. And the same is 1987, look, Cuba could not have maintained an army in Angola without the support of the Soviet Union. That is clear. But the decision to send the troops at the two most critical moments, late 75 and late 87, were Cuban decisions taken without consulting the Soviet Union. In both cases, the Soviet Union was confronted with the fait accompli. On November 15, 1987, Fidel Castro decided to send reinforcement to Angola, uh, basically 18,000 men, and uh, to send the best weapons Cuba had and everything. And this was done to chase, to, to kick the South Africans out of Angola once for all. And, and this was done without consulting the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of documents for 87, 88, more than what I have for 75, 76. And there is an exchange of letters between Gorbachev and Fidel 
Gorbachev was unhappy. And he writes a letter to Fidel complaining about the Cuban decision. And Fidel Reagan answers in a very sharp way, very critical of the Soviet Union in Angola. And the Cubans asked the, the, the Soviets to send them additional weapons, but they made clear that the operation would proceed even if the Soviet Union did not send the weapons Cuba wanted. And for about 88 days, the Soviet Union did not reply to the request of Cuba for additional weapons. And then they did, and they sent almost everything Cuban wanted. Because uh, Gorbachev considered it was not possible to quarrel with Fidel Castro. Uh, he had enough problems if you don't want with Fidel Castro criticizing him from every side, etc. And uh, Gorbachev behaved in a very loyal way in Angola in 1988. He sent away what the Cubans demanded, and he, the, he let the Cubans direct the negotiations with Americans and the South Africans. This is one case in which the Soviet Union behaved very well. And, and otherwise, besides this, I, you know, in reading some of, some of what you've written, it, it, it seems like, and, and as well listening to some other interviews, the Soviets didn't quite know what was going on on the ground. Um, they had a, you know, their estimation of the MPLA, for example, as you've said in other places, was they sort of uh, doubted them and thought they didn't really uh, have the potential to conduct a military struggle. So what was the, the difference between the Soviet perspective and the Cuban perspective on the MPLA? Um, and, and why did the Soviets underestimate, underestimate the MPLA and the, the Cubans believe they were a worthy faction to support and to is, supply aid to? Well, you're talking of 75? Uh, in 75, yeah. In 75, uh, the, uh, Brezhnev was completely fixated on the taunt. For him, the most important thing was the taunt and the salt to treaty. Uh, called with the director of central intelligence in a meeting of the National Security Council in August 1975, said Gorbachev is sick. The next Congress of the Soviet Communist Party in February 76 is going to be his last Congress, and he wants to bring to the Congress salt, the salt to treaty. That is really focused. And the Soviets mistrusted the MPLA. Uh, and they had wanted the MPLA to embrace the Soviet position in the struggle against China. And Agostino Neto was very keen in asserting the independence of the MPLA. The Soviets gave assistance to the MPLA, but uh, with a lot of uh, suspicions. Uh, the Cubans had good relations with the MPLA. They were not dramatically close relations uh, after 19, 1966. The closest friend of Angola, of the MPLA, in early 1975 was Yugoslavia. And uh, the Cubans were late. The Cubans create, started creating a military mission in Angola only in August 1975. And uh, they were busy creating their military mission. And then all of a sudden, there is this awareness that the South Africans have invaded and that the South Africans are going, 
are advancing the MPLA army is not strong enough to stop the South Africans. And as a senior officer, Cuban official told me, what Cuba had in Angola were military advisors. Military advisors are not troops. Military advisors cannot stop an invasion. And that's when you have the Cuban decision to send soldiers. And again, the relationship with MPLA was not extremely close. I really think what triggered the Cuban decision was the issue of apartheid. What was taking place was an invasion by South African apartheid. And, and with that, what, what fascinates me with the situation, of course, is uh, an element you know, with respect to the battle of, and the South African invasion that at the same time that South Africa is invading, of course, South Africa is under an arms embargo for the most part by the world. Um, of course, the US doesn't clearly respect this fully, but this leads to, I think, what you were pointing out earlier about the South African Air Force being uh, militarily obsolete with respect to the Cuban. But that's not relevant for 75, 76. Right, the arms embargo yeah. was- uh -huh. 88. Uh-huh. So, but but that leads me, I you know, with that, I'm curious just in general with how much was the US supporting South Africa militarily? Um, should we, you know, believe that the US was really supplying a lot of the weaponry, um, no, a lot of the military? The major support came from Israel. Israel okay, is very well. close ties with the South Africans. France okay. had also ties with the South Africans. Uh, the South Africans didn't have problems. Look, the reason South Africa didn't, didn't have a very strong air force is simply because they didn't feel the need of a very strong air force because there were no other forces in, in Southern Africa or Central Africa. It's the same, South Africa did not have good anti-aircraft anti weapons. They didn't have good anti-aircraft weapons because they never imagined they would have to face an enemy air force. <clears throat> so this was, I don't think South Africa was particularly weakened in 87, 88 because of the arm embargo. And South Africa had splendid heavy guns uh, that were better than anything the Cubans had. Right. And, and with that, I'm curious, uh, you know, to what extent the, of course, the South African army is supported by the Zairean army, they're supporting Savimbi, but how much of a U.S. presence was there in the fighting? Does, did it go beyond CIA agents or and military support? In 88, uh, the U.S. presence was that the U.S. had been giving military aid to Savimbi. <clears throat> Perhaps there were a few CIA agents uh, around Savimbi, but there was no real U.S. presence in Angola in 88, but they had been giving military assistance to Savimbi. Uh, probably they had been giving military assistance to Savimbi since Carter, uh, but uh, the assistance became official in 86, and then uh, it increased. Um, so the next thing I, I would like to ask a little bit about beyond the actual fighting is more at the conclusion of, 
of the conflict. So Cuba is able to successfully defend um, the operation at, at Quito Cuenaval. And then how can you can you talk a little bit more about the demands of both sides? So of course well, there's first of a, all, yeah. what is critical and what okay they defend Quito Cuenaval, but you don't win a war with a defensive victory. Uh, what happens is March in 1988 is the end of the Battle of Cuitopona Valley with the Cuban defensive victory. There is the third last major attack by the South African army against Cuitopona Valley, which is a failure. But at the same time, in late March, what you have is the beginning of the Cuban offensive in the Southwest towards Namibia. As Fidel Castro said, once talking with Slovo, the general secretary of the South African Communist Party, it was like the boxer with the left hand holds a blow and the left hand was Quito Bonavale and with the right hand strikes and the right hand were the Cuban troops that started advancing in the southwest towards the Namibian border. And the South Africans withdrew slowly but withdrew uh, because of the military superiority of the Cubans. And uh, you have the negotiations which are taking place. And the decisive moment of the negotiations, in my view, are the Cairo negotiations in uh, June 24, 26, 1988. The first plenary session is in the afternoon. In the morning, a South African, the South African delegation, which includes Magnus Maland, the Minister of Defense, Dick Botha, the Foreign Minister, and the slew of generals goes to the American Embassy. And they have two questions they want to ask. One, what is the strength of this Cuban army that is advancing? Because the South African Air Force cannot fly over the Cuban troops because the Cuban troops have very good anti-aircraft systems brought from Cuba. And so they have to rely on the American, the satellite system. And the second is what are the intentions of the Cubans? Will they stop at the Namibian border? And uh, the response of the Americans, of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense is one, to detail the strength of, uh, this is a South African document, by the way, to detail the strength of the, of the Cuban army, which is impressive. And two, the intention, he says, well, at the beginning we thought they just wanted to go to the border, but now they are so strong that we have the feeling that it may be an army ready to, to cross into Namibia and if they cross into Namibia, they will take the South African military bases in Northern Namibia. The Americans give it as a given. And so what you have is the nightmare that the Cubans might enter Namibia. And this forces the South Africans to negotiate. Essentially, you have a collapse of the South Africans' position demands at this meeting in London where they basically accept uh, the Cuban demands. Then it will become a question of crossing the T's, dotting the I's, 
will take more months, but that is the moment when South African reality throws the towel. And that is because of it. And again, you have statements of every side. You have the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States Armed Forces. You have General Haldanais. They all say the same things, that the Cubans have gained the upper hand. Now, South Africa was handicapped, but the outcome is, cannot be explained just uh, the Cuban army. There were three elements. One, the Cuban armed forces, the Cuban veterans, other than all. Two, the, fear, the growing fear of economic sanctions of the apartheid regime. And three, the struggle of the South African people in the townships, etc., which mobilized a large part of the South African army. So South Africa was not able to send more troops. Uh, and in Namibia, by the way, they kept a lot of soldiers in Namibia because of the swap of guerrillas. And so essentially South Africa had to accept by and large the Cuban demands. But with this, I, I think a subject that, that is curious to me and a lot of people interested in the situation is why Cuba stopped um, and why they accepted the Namibian independence uh, and, and chose to withdraw ultimately um, and, and not proceed further. Was it clear to them that apartheid was, was coming to an end and oh, they didn't need to do uh, anything further? Cuba won. Cuba, after confronting the Soviet with the Philippines, Cuba made clear to the Soviet Union that the Cuban army was not going to invade Namibia. That would have been essentially a break with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was willing to get a slap, accept a slap, but in terms of the international situation, in terms of the international community, would have been uh, a huge uh, challenge to the international community. And third, uh, South Africa had atomic weapons. The Cubans knew it. Fidel Castro was convinced that South Africa would not use the, its bombs if the war was just in Southern Angola, but they might in Namibia. And uh, Fidel Castro acknowledged that there were limits to what Cuba could do. Cuba was not in a position to send an army to South Africa. To send an army just in Namibia wouldn't mean much because he was getting Namibian independence in any case at the table of negotiations would have been to destroy apartheid. And Cuba in 1988 could not afford to do it. So he had to accept some very realistic limits. Yeah, that, that's intriguing. You mentioned as well earlier about, about Israel giving support to South Africa. And I think it's widely speculated that's why they had the nuclear weapons because of the Israeli connection. Um, well, with, with this, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit of, of Joslovo coordinating with uh, with Castro and with the offensive. How close was the relationship with the, the South African uh, anti-apartheid forces like the South African Communist Party when they were theorizing about what to do at the end? Did they push back against, against this decision and say, no, you should actually go all the way or they were willing to accept it um, because they realized what you mentioned, the, the realistic 
situation was Cuban withdrawal and Namibian independence. There was no, as far as I know, there was no coordination with uh, mm -hmm. the, the ANC or the South African Communist Party. Uh, beginning, Cuba was very impressed, like so many other people, countries in the world, by the uprising that began in the summer of 1984. And you have visits uh, to Havana by Tambo, by Slovo, in which you have people like uh, Raul Castro, which came, telling the South Africans, tell, tell us what we can do to help. Uh, we want to help, and there was a great desire to help. But when it came to the campaign, the campaign of 1988, the strategy of 1988, Cuba didn't discuss it with anyone, including the Soviets, except giving the Soviets the pledge that the Cubans would not enter Namibia. And, and this leads to sort of my final questions, which are, of course, South Africa and Cuba today are very close. They have very close ties because of the, uh, as we've been talking about throughout the feeling of gratitude to the Cubans for, for ending apartheid and really participating and helping in this way. And as the Cuban operation came to a close, what was the, the feeling um, in 1988? Of course, you know, as you've been mentioning, a feeling of optimism that apartheid was coming to an end, but what was the feeling of the South Africans towards the Cubans and, and vice versa? You're mentioning being in Havana. What were some of the discussions that, that were being held uh, with, with the South Africans to say, basically, thank you for, for the Cubans? Well, you know, they've done? In 1989, the Congress of the Communist Party of South Africa was held in Cuba, in Matanzas. And uh, relations were very good. And you know, in uh, Pretoria, they have uh, the wall, uh, I don't know, what is the name, where you have all the names of the Cubans who died. Right, the memorial wall. I, yeah, I know what you're saying. and that is only, only Cubans there, only Cubans there. The impression I have, and my knowledge of South African is very limited, based on my trips, is that essentially the old fighters of the NC, whether Communist Party or NC doesn't make any difference, have very warm feelings for Cuba and the sense of gratitude for Cuba. On the other side, the, the people of the NC do not, don't, don't, they are not teaching the history of South Africa or what happened to the young generations. Uh, those who write books are the fallen lords of apartheid. And so it seems to me that the new generation in South Africa uh, doesn't know very well the story of the NC and the MK and much less of Cuba. It's not a question of lack of gratitude, as you have the feeling when you go to Angola. It's just a question that the new generation doesn't know the history of their country. And it's really a pity. Uh, it's a feeling I had when I was in South Africa the last time, which was, I think, in 2017. And, you know, I, I'm the first one to acknowledge it's a superficial feeling, but that's the feeling I have. And it's really a pity because it means essentially that the history of what happened 
is written by other people who have an agenda to manipulate the truth. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, I wonder how Cubans remember the intervention in Angola. Uh, is there a sense today that this was a necessary mission, that this absolutely was, no, was relevant? There is a sense of disappointment. Yeah. Uh, Angola has shown very little gratitude to Cuba. You know, you have a country like Namibia, where there is a clear gratitude to Cuba, and they openly stress their debt towards Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. And the Angolan regime, the Angolan government, has done its best to manipulate the history, to overlook uh, the role of Cuba. Uh, in uh, 2007, I think, uh, at, uh, a in a ceremony, President Dos Santos talked about uh, the negotiations between the MPLA, Angola, and South Africa in 1987-88 with the mediation of the United States and completely overlooked Cuba, didn't even mention Cuba. And uh, Cubans are aware, not necessarily every one of uh, the statement of Dos Santos, but that Angola never offered any help, even a symbolic help uh, to Cuba in the 1990s, et cetera, et cetera. I think there is a, a feeling of disappointment uh, and a justified disappointment, by the way. Right. I don't and, include yeah. South Africa and certainly not Namibia, but in, right. in, in terms of Angola. And I guess the last thing would just be uh, the memories of, of the veterans of, of this struggle. Um, I'm sure you've spoken to many veterans uh, from Cuba and from Angola, um, South Africa, and, and why do they remember this as, as relevant and as necessary um, in their participation? And do they feel disappointed uh, that, that it wasn't repaid or do they still feel that the sacrifices made in the struggle were, were very necessary? The people I spoke to, the great majority, feel it was necessary. But again, they regret that uh, the lack of gratitude on the part of Angola. Thanks so much. And, uh, and yeah, I think as you were saying, um, you know, South Africa and Namibia during the special period, and, and still today, South Africa and Namibia are very supportive of Cuba, yeah. but not as much repaid um, from, from Angola. But yeah, there's still a lot of South African Cuban solidarity. So thank you so much, Professor Gleje. My pleasure. It's uh, Glejeses. Glejeses yes. Okay. But well, thank okay. you so much. You're I appreciate speaking well. to you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.